Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That is your time, of course. I'm especially honored if you're new here. I hope that you'll get a massive amount of value from this episode. I want to thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur won't let you down. He's no stranger to distributed energy, high growth startups, and the nexus of smart technology and the power industry. For nearly three decades, Andy Tang has led business development, strategic planning, corporate finance, and M&A for some of the energy and telecom sector's most influential players. From modernizing that electric grid with smart meters to replacing the same grid with energy storage and microgrids, Andy has long been at the bleeding edge of the digital energy frontier. If you like this and other conversations like it, then I would encourage you to subscribe to our show because that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this one. Of course, you can always check out nearly 500 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I alluded in the intro there, my friend Andy Tang, who many of you will recognize as Vice President of Energy Storage and Optimization for Vartzilla Global Power Company, is joining us today to talk about his three decades of deep experience crossing the chasm between early adopter technologies and existing industries. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Suncast. Thank you, Nico. Actually, I am uh, very much excited uh, to be joining your podcast and very much looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise, my friend, it's been a long time coming. I've been watching the makings of the businesses that you have been involved in for most, if not all of my career. I remember the early days of seeing this little company called Greensmith and uh, and being so, uh, I'll say, pleasantly surprised with with what it has become. We'll get into much more of that, but let's get in the way back machine for a second. And I'd like to kind of go back in time to think about the making of the man, Andy Tang. What was family life for you at a young age like in terms of your influence? And in particular, like the circle around what did dinner table conversations look like at home growing up? And how did that impact the way you looked at or thought about career aspirations? I pretty much grew up in a classic uh, first-generation uh, immigrant family. You know, I'm the only, I'm the first uh, American-born in my uh, in my Chinese household, and a lot of the emphasis was really on 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 fitting in and and really um, a bit of going down a professional route. Um, so, you know, my my brothers uh, were became doctors. My sister um, actually uh, married a physician. And so there was a strong emphasis on uh, on the on the medical path and the medical career for uh, for me. Um, I had one problem though. Uh, my big problem is that at, at some point I realized that I actually don't like the sight of blood. I, I remember freshman year I, I came to terms with the fact that I don't like blood and I don't like hospitals. 
Um, and so a career where you spend a lifetime in a hospital probably wasn't the right thing. Um, so I made the very difficult decision. I uh, informed my, my uh, very Chinese mother. There was much disappointment, but acceptance, uh, but much disappointment. Uh, and then I went down, a, and then I went down the the, uh, the rabbit hole of not knowing what I wanted to do. So that was a real, a real early challenge. Yeah, you've had by I'd say any standard a very successful career. Do you have conversations with your parents now, or did you at some point have conversations with them that suggested that that they're proud of the decisions you've made, despite the fact that you didn't end up in a hospital? My, my father passed away when I was young. Um, so um, I think my mother um, has has uh, begrudgingly accepted and understood that I've been able to carve a, a, a reasonable position um, for myself and for my family um, in, in the in the direction that I chose. As recently as 10 years ago, my mother was was still like, you know, it's not too late to go back to medical school. You, you really could do it. That's uh oh my gosh, that's remarkable. I mean, knowing what we're going to talk about today and how the last 10 years have really uh, been the the time where you, you know, your wings were able to spread and you were able to leverage that early the your early career growth to be a champion for new technology, in particular clean energy technology. Man, I certainly hope that uh, like many of us, your mother can appreciate the work that you've accomplished over the last decade. But you didn't start out in clean energy. You didn't even start out in technology really at all. You took a different path. Talk about the first steps into a career and and why you chose banking. So given that I didn't really know what I wanted to do and given that my family had had really, you know, most of the influence that I had around me was more towards medicine. I really was kind of at this position, like, well, what am I going to do? I know I don't want to be in a hospital, but I don't want to be a lawyer. So what am I going to do? And so I was fortunate enough to to be given the opportunity to go work in finance, to work uh, in one of these corporate investment banking uh, analyst training programs. And my rationale at the time was that I would I would do this because this would actually give me an opportunity to see many different businesses. Kind of, it was a position where you had a bird's eye view of different businesses, whether they be healthcare, telecom, technology, power sector. Um, so you really, really got a chance to kind of survey. And my original thought was that I would do that for, you know, maybe three years and then and then really uh, be able to reassess, potentially go to business school and whatnot and pick my industry from there. So after 15 years uh, in the banking industry and having done all aspects of leverage finance, high yield finance, um, M&A, I was at a bit of a crossroads. Uh, I, I liked working with my clients and I liked what my clients were actually doing as opposed to just being on the periphery, helping them to finance their business plans. And so there was a real pause on, on, on what should I do and, you know, do I go a more entrepreneurial route or do I, uh, or do I continue down, down this, this finance path? And I guess the decision was maybe accelerated a little bit when, when I started uh, developing some, some heart issues and actually had a full-blown heart attack at, at the age of 35. And so that really caused me to, to take a pause and say, what's important to me and, and, and what do I want to do? Wow, Andy. Um, yeah, life events in the, that, that affect the most important part of our, uh, of our humanity, our health, can certainly allow us to, to reframe and reflect sound like you, as, as we will no doubt learn a whole lot more, you have a penchant for and a habit of really taking stock on a regular basis. Am I doing the thing that is most important 
for my career, for my family, for my long-term well-being. At this point, 15 years, perhaps a little bit longer than you intended, uh, you, you did get that high-level purview of what's happening in industry, including working clear through the tech bubble and burst and the rebuild from an infrastructure perspective of, of the internet. From that vantage point, how did you start to filter or think about decisions that would impact your career and how you could make the biggest impact on the, the trends that you saw happening? Well, the interesting thing was uh, if you have, you have to go back to 2005 and try to remember that the iPhone was not invented yet. And that the number one selling phone was was you know either the Nokia brick phone or the Motorola flip phone, so wireless data was a very very distant dream. Um, but there were a number of companies that were really looking at at promoting um, wireless data. As I mentioned in my banking days, I got I had the privilege of working with a company called Metricom, which which was truly revolutionary in trying to build a wireless uh, data network. But they were like many things ahead of their time. And so the market wasn't ready yet. The, the, the you know people were not ready to stream video regularly yet, um, which is kind of quaint to mention now in 2022 when you see people on the subways and and in all walks of life and sitting in parks and they're watching TV programs from their you know from their smartphones. Yeah, and not only not only that, they're uploading in real time gigabytes of data from their phones to live viewers. Absolutely. You look at the TikTok phenomenon and, 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 what, and whatnot, and you have to go back, you have to try to put yourself in, you have to try to put yourself in the historical context in 2005. None of this existed. And there were really open debates about whether or not, whether or not we needed to build the networks to be able to support that. And, and there was a little bit of a uh, Kevin Costner field of dreams. Like if we build it, will they come? Yeah. And, and the answer was not, was not a foregone conclusion. Um, not, not at all. I mean, the, you know, Nokia had built this device called the communicator, which was arguably one of the first smartphones. Uh, but it wasn't, it, you know, it, it never reached the levels of, of, of commercial success. There were a number of, uh, mobile, uh, really portable laptops that people were developing, but they still, they just look like a laptop with a chiclet style keyboard. And so it really took Steve Jobs to, uh, you know, to create a product that was so desirable that it, it really spawned an industry. And so as a result, that really uh, opened up the telecommunications industry and really focused on on that. So I went to go work for Intel, which at the time was trying to develop a broadband wireless technology that was really focused on being able to deliver, uh, you know, gigabytes of data to individual users um, at, at affordable prices. So I can certainly easily paint the picture from the leap from banking, watching the internet being stood up, understanding that that the internet as it matured would increasingly require additional broadband, additional bandwidth, et cetera. And the company at the time that was definitely and still remains leading from a from an innovation, from a patent, from an IP perspective was Intel. Help me understand the evolution of your career from Intel into energy. So I was at Intel for about a year. It was 2006. And there was a lot of if you go back and look at the headlines uh, in 2006, there was a lot of talk about uh, about modernizing the power grid. This was kind of the first generation of clean tech was really happening around this time and how we're going to modernize the power grid. And there were a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities that were that were developing around that. And I started to speak to some people and, and, and look at some of those opportunities. 
So, you know, continuing to, to want to chase this desire to do something more entrepreneurial, there were a number of companies that I began talking to in the clean tech space, the emerging at that point, clean tech space. And there was a similar theme that came out. The similar theme was that the uh, the regulated utilities were, were lumbering big and dumb and they were going to get disintermediated. And I didn't necessarily believe they were going to get disintermediated straight away. Um, I didn't even necessarily believe, you know, there's a reason why we why we decided to create monopolies. Um, and there's a reason why globally it wound up being that 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 the power distribution system is essentially a natural monopoly. So I decided to take a step back and say, well, you know what? I want to understand the, the internal pressures inside a utility. I want to understand why a utility makes the decisions it makes. And I was fortunate enough to, uh, uh, to get an opportunity to do just that with uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company in the San Francisco Bay Area. PG&E serves Northern California. It's got a service territory that's about 5 million uh, meters, maybe about uh, 10 million customers or so. And uh, they were viewed as being on the progressive end of electric utilities. Most importantly, and really how I made the bridge, how I made the jump from telecom to uh, electric utilities or the power system, was because they were um, on the verge of deploying a smart meter. And so I was brought in to help evaluate the technology decisions that they were making on the on the smart meter project. Were you recruited or did you respond to a job offer, a job posting? In this, I was fortunate. A, a, uh, a former colleague of mine had wound up as the uh, SVP of strategy and uh, he somewhat recruited me. As I always say here, your network is your net worth. And the ability, I, f- I find that it's all too often young folks maybe who don't have influence from bigger, uh, big brothers or, uh, or, or connected family members or having gone to a great educational institution, they miss the opportunity to go work at a company like you did where folks that you work with go on to bigger and better opportunities, right? Like a lot of folks want to jump into startups straight out of school. And unless you get incredibly lucky by going to a Google or somewhere like that, it's it's rare then that you get to parlay these these shared experiences into the opportunity to pull each other into new roles. I just wanted to point that out because I think it's a it's a telltale sign of someone who has been really exemplary in their career that they get invited to take new opportunities by pe- people who admire their work at previous jobs. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you uh, more on that. I mean, you know, the, the, this this also goes back to our, a parallel thought, which is you know, it, it doesn't cost anything to be nice. And it doesn't cost anything to be curious, and it doesn't cost anything sometimes to help people out, um, even though they may not be in your reporting stream or whatnot. It really doesn't. And 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 I would agree with you that your internal network, you know, is, is something really valuable, and you don't have to be born into a network necessarily. So you were offered this job in PG&E to essentially roll out this smart meter program, circa 2007, for those who are trying to keep track of where we are on the time scale. I'd love to know what were the skills. I think it's obvious the telecom connection. What, what else did PG&E see in your uh, your skill set? And then what what if anything surprised you about the way they were approaching smart meter? Uh, most of all, it was the technology background. So specifically, having dealt with wireless networks for for the, the past decade um, is one of the things they saw. Another thing at that time, PG&E was also investing in a lot of new executives and, and not coincidentally, a lot of the executives had come from uh, telecom industries. And there is a maybe a, uh, a parallel that maybe people don't quite appreciate, which is at the end of the day, 
a telecom network or the original telecom networks were very similar to the uh, electricity networks. And let me unpack that a little bit. Essentially, in the 1990s, you had to build a network to your last call. So you were making an assumption about how many simultaneous calls you wanted to support, and you had to build the network infrastructure to support that last call. And in the in the old days, there would be you would get a uh, if if you were the call that exceeded that limit that was built in the, into the network, you would get a strange message that maybe many of your of the listeners today have never heard before. But you'd get a message that would be like, "All circuits are busy right now. Please try again later." Right, so you get this automated voice telling you very nicely that there's no more there's no more capacity on the network, and that 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 last call is called the busy hour. So all networks were planned around the busy hour, and unfortunately, what that means is that there are 23 other hours that are not using the network to the busy hour, right? And so you had all sorts of creative marketing plans that were released in the in that two, in that early 2000s timeframe, like free nights and weekends, because people realized that. All that capacity to deliver calls in the non-busy hour, the cost of that capacity was free, was zero. So if you could get consumers to use that and, and create behaviors that, that overall increase their usage, and if you could find other ways to charge them, then, then it's essentially found money on a fixed investment. So now fast forward to electricity. Electricity is governed by fundamentally the exact same dynamic. We build transmission and distribution to support the load curve. We support the load curve for the hottest day or the coldest day, depending on where you live. But those networks are sized for the population growth and to support the hottest day or the coldest day. It's the exact same concept. So how do you distribute or spread out so that you're not constrained by the distribution or the, or the transmission networks? And that's really a lot of what's going on now with distributed solar, with the uh, addition of of uh, storage to to various to uh, you know to central solar station power plants, and all of that. But it's this notion of being able to time shift energy. Many uh, of your listeners may remember when uh, when there was a new verb introduced in the English language of TiVoing, uh, uh, when yeah. you could when you could take a TV show and and TiVo it to a different hour, so you didn't have to tune in at eight p.m. to watch Friends. As an example, and I'm dating myself with my examples, but but essentially, this is you know, energy storage is TiVoing electricity. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, and that's that's also what great makes you a great marketer is the ability to say it's it's the this of that. One of the things that happens, and I've seen it happen time and again with friends who decide to sort of go on the go inside, go to a utility, is it can is certainly in your 30s and 40s, raising a family, creating stability for yourself. Again, it can become very comfortable and safe. A lot of folks will stay in that Intel or that PG&E job because it's comfortable and safe. You got an opportunity to do some things that were edgy, that were on the grid edge, literally, like rolling out smart, smart meters. You ultimately ran the demand response program. Tell me about the sort of the view from the driver's seat at PG&E that enticed the entrepreneur in you. You know, I think you raise a really good uh, point that it that a utility job really is it really is easy um, to get uh, uh, to get comfortable and to carve out a position and and it's a very safe position. But it turns into a bit of a day to day, and there's only uh, so much change that 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 you can really affect because the pace of change inside a utility 
By definition, and I think it's actually uh, it's necessary. I mean, we, we we have to keep the grids up and running, and we have to be we can't be you know really really too fast on some of these decisions. These issues do have to be studied. But I guess where where for me what what happened was uh, I, I I did start working with a lot of of the startup community and and tried to look at how we could bring some of the startup innovation into uh, into the utility business. And so, for instance, there was a company called Opower, which was leading leading the charge on on energy efficiency. And we brought Opower in, and 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 they became an important partner. And actually, if you go to mypgne.com today, it, it is still uh, based on a deal that I put together in 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 2010, I think, uh, with Opower. Um, it was the one of the first SaaS deals that we we actually engaged in at at, at PGE. As I recall, that project with Opower stemmed from you trying to solve a different problem inside of PG&E that you'd received some grant money for. Is that right? Yeah, that's. this was really a great example of a win-win situation and a, and a startup being able to help a, a, a large company and, and, and have positive benefits for both. We had, uh, in, in one of our rate cases, we had uh, applied for and, and we were granted money to uh, really work on our customer uh, user interface. And we had uh, begun developing it and I, I had uh, uh, taken over project management responsibility for that project, and it was uh, it was not going well. We had a, we had an authorized budget, and we were um, we were exceeding the budget, and we were descoping what we could offer because because we were exceeding the budget. So we were trying to descope the project to get something across the finish line. And at some point, it just you know what we were going to be able to get across the finish line was was just really uh, a shadow of what we had promised. And so as a result, I, I started to look at other alternatives. Opower was talking to us about their um, their um, energy efficiency flyers that they would send to our customers, uh, essentially the guilt flyer that helps, that turns it into a competition to see who can do better on energy efficiency. And um, we looked at that together with Dan and Alex and we said, you know, well, they, they had shared their roadmap with me on what they wanted to do on a little bit more of a user dashboard. And I looked at that and said, that's exactly what we want to do on, a, on, a, on our MyPG&E and really be able to give users a critical analysis of what they're, what they're using their power on. So we, uh, we talked about how we could help each other out. And, and that led to a new product for Opower, which, uh, which they uh, you know, continued to deploy across other utilities. Which ultimately became... Uh, I would say like the, the, the gemstone in their crown for them to, to grow as one of the industry leaders for the product that they, I'll say empowered utilities to help consumers utilize. It's, I mean, what a fun, what a fun story and a great um, insight into how you coming from telecom, looking at uh, how to solve problems inside of a utility, got a chance to see that public facing real public private partnership. I mean, the ability to sell anything to PG&E is a, is a, uh, is a, is a landmark moment yeah. for any startup. <laughs> and, uh, those of us, yeah, those of us who know the story of Opower recognize that this must've been one of the earliest, uh, sort of product market fit use cases that propelled them onto their success. So that's fun to know. Yeah, no, it, it was truly a win all around. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people 
who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. <laughs> but that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. I know over a four-year period, given the exposure you had to a lot of different technologies, there are probably too many stories to tell. I'd love to hear if anything stands out for you that was both extremely interesting and illustrative of the kinds of, of data that you analyzed or the kinds of projects that you ran that started to pique your interest directionally towards how electric vehicles might integrate with the grid, how smart grid might work, how ultimately storage might, might take a role. Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I think to give credit where credit is due, I think PG&E was actually pretty early in understanding that electric vehicles could be, um, you know, were coming and they could be a real challenge to their business, not to their business model, but to the safe delivery of electricity, safe, reliable delivery of electricity. So we were tasked with trying to figure out what, you know, what do we think that impact would be and what could we do around that impact? How can we, you know, how can we turn lemons into into lemonade, so to speak? So we did uh, an analysis. We got the data from from DMV and we looked at uh, Prius registrations across the state. And what we discovered wasn't too surprising, which is that Prius registrations tended to group themselves around particular um, zip codes. And so you would see uh, some neighborhoods where you would have a high preponderance of uh, of Priuses, you know, where they would even even occupy as much as 20% of the car registrations in certain neighborhoods. So you were matching car registrations to the existing addresses that you have of your users? Well, no, we weren't going to the user level. There was, there's definitely some, some privacy issues there, but we were matching car registrations to neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods would basically then, we would match that to our distribution network. And so while Priuses at the time were, you know, hybrid electric with battery, they didn't charge. They, they didn't charge from the from the grid. They didn't plug in. They weren't. Pl- they, it wasn't plug-in hybrids yet at that point. We saw plug-ins coming, right? It was it was clearly on the on the horizon. The um, you know, uh, uh, GM was coming out with the Volt, and uh, Tesla, of course, was was making noise about what they were what they were, what their plans were. Um, way back when in 2010. And so we had to get ahead of this and say, okay, it's coming. It's not like we're going to block this, but we better get ahead of this and start communicating to our utilities commission that this is going to require a distribution kind of overhaul. And so, you know, we looked at that and and the premise behind the Prius registrations was that obviously that, that the Prius adopters were the early adopters. And when a full-scale battery electric vehicle came out, 
it would likely be those same zip codes that would be the early adopters of a full battery electric vehicle. And so we started to try to put some business plans together around this also. And uh, we had come up with something called the smart garage, which was really a view that, that you know, if, if you could control when, when, if you could manage when your customer would actually recharge their vehicle, you wouldn't have to build to the busy hour. So this is back to that telecom analogy, right? Because with the coming of electric cars, with the fact that most of them would charge overnight, but the issue is, is you have you have an eight, 10 hour, 12 hour window when they can charge. If you just allow them to charge the minute they all plug in, then you're creating a new busy hour. But if if there were some sort of smart parameters or pricing signals or other things to kind of manage when they would uh, when they would charge on mass, then then you you solve that busy hour problem through technology. You know, it, it makes me think a lot along the lines as we are also seeing around the same time uh, exponential growth in California, where PG&E is located, of uh, grid attached technology like solar and a lot of experimentation, I'll say, with time of use rates, et cetera, first for solar and then for the early EV adopters kind of come into that 2011, 2012 timeframe. How did the evolution, you know, we talked about the time that you were in banking and you sort of stepping back and seeing what was evolving in the industry, the infrastructure needs, the the expansion of telecom and broadband. I have to imagine that you're sitting around year three at PG&E thinking, hmm, I don't really want to be a lifer at this utility. I didn't come here for that. I came here to get a macro view and then I want to dive back into corporate. What trends from that perspective and from being on the sort of the front lines, meeting companies like Opower and thinking about this smart garage, what trends were piquing your interest that ultimately led you to Greensmith? Yeah, so one of the things that I, I, I wanted to do was really kind of scalable energy efficiency, scalable demand response was really an area that I was that, that that had intrigued me and the ability to use technology to to help out with that. And so there were some opportunities that were uh, that were uh, in front of me. Um, one of them was a commercial building energy efficiency play that was a good concept, a very difficult business model to execute. And so unfortunately, that didn't uh, that was one of those startups that did not make the final the final cut. You ended up joining a startup that didn't make it. Correct. Oh, how about that? I love that you're willing to at least tell the story that you took a step and it was a, it, it seemed like the right step. <laughs> you know, from my diligence, it was a well-funded uh, startup. I had, I was, I had spoke to the VC that was the, the main funder and they were very confident in this investment. They thought this investment was the one that would monetize in their portfolio. And, and, you know, VCs, I mean, you know, two out of every 10 succeed and, you know, he was fairly confident that this was one of the one of his uh, portfolio successes, and so. Uh, but the business model was just too challenging. The the acquisition this, the uh, uh, the acquisition cost for each customer was just too high, and there were too many things that could that could go wrong along the way that would require a truck roll. And once you required a truck roll, you you destroyed any chance of profitability for that for that customer. It's funny how similar still 10 years on. Exactly. And, and that's the fundamental problem is, is, is that, uh, is it to scale, right. Is, is that, that does that need to, to send a truck to fix a problem really kills because the benefits are, are meaningful, but they're still, you know, small, relatively small and, and sending a truck to a site is relatively expensive. So then I, I, I said, well, let's focus more on the software side. 
and um, uh, joined another startup, uh, which was really uh, and and they were interested in me because I had run the demand response programs at PG&E, and their software was really about scaling um, demand response. So I went to work for for this company um, that was really focused on the software side of demand response and other other applications for for utilities. But uh, half, after having worked there for a year or so. It really got back to the decision of you know what do I want out of life and and my work life balance wasn't uh, wasn't quite what I wanted. Um, I had some uh, disagreements with the direction that the management team was heading, and so I decided that uh, you know the CEO was the majority shareholder, and uh, I wasn't going to be able to influence um, activities in in the direction that 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 would help uh, improve my my view on, on where the company should move. So I decided to um, take myself out of the, of the running, so to speak. And I think that's that actually for your listeners, that that's an important thing, which is, I think that, you know, one shouldn't be afraid of, of, of taking control of their career and changing their circumstances. I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've mostly learned also in the last 10 years is that, uh, or eight years is that you can do incredible things when you're actually really happy and motivated. And sometimes you may find yourself in a situation where you don't get along with the various people, and it's it's not necessarily the people. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's just, you know, there are a wide variety of personalities, and some people get along and others don't. And I do feel that uh, that sometimes life is too short. You know, if you go back to my, my life event at 35, I think that life is too short to, to put yourself into situations where you're not, where you're not getting fulfillment. Yeah, podcasts were barely a thing back when you and I, when you were at PG&E and I was at uh, a little, uh, relatively small roofing and solar contractor in Northern California, uh, 2007, 2009, I wish I'd had this podcast to listen to. I wish I'd had somebody like you, Andy, to say to me, you know what, that job that seems really promising, that's giving you a lot of, of sort of network visibility and you're definitely training on how, I, I wish somebody had said to me, it's not worth it. Like you, you really don't like the work environment. And there are 50 other companies who would gladly recruit you away. I just wish I'd had the courage and confidence in somebody like you as a mentor to say that to me. I'm really glad that someone can listen to this now early in their career and, and hear from the two of us that it really does matter that you recognize two things. One, you really got to be plugged in and happy at what you're doing. And if you're not, you're not, you're not only harming and limiting yourself, but you're limiting the company that would, that is otherwise paying for your time to be there. And then two, there are always people, assuming you've developed skills that are marketable, there are always people willing to pay you what you're making now or more to move yeah. over. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you you are just so much more effective when you're enjoying what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And and as we mentioned, like when you're enjoying who you're doing yes. it with. Yeah. Well, tell me about how you made the transition over and ultimately into energy storage, which candidly, uh, you did long before many of our compatriots in the solar industry saw the light and started moving over to energy storage as a as a the scion of, of what's to come and the, the beacon of hope that we now see in 2022 clearly. Talk to me about that period of 2013, 2014. You're yet again, you're thinking, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll recount for the, for those listening. You've now had from a great, a very successful run leading teams at PG&E. We'll call it two failed startup experiences over the course of a three, a roughly two and a half year period. And you're in your now early 40s. How do you pivot from that, Andy? Well, if you put it that way, it looks like I committed career suicide, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, you did. but ultimately, but ultimately, we know the reality of how the last uh, 
of how the last nine years have rolled out for you. So I'd love for you to paint it in the the appropriate light. How did you discover energy storage, Greensmith, and everything that can to come? Yeah. So you know, energy storage had always been actually another interesting story. Is I spoke to the original founders of STEM before they had rebranded and renamed themselves as STEM. They were uh, an early stage startup that was funded by Kleiner Perkins. It was actually Trey Vasallo when she was at Kleiner. And she had brought them in to meet with me. And, and their concept was a, ref- a dorm refrigerator sized energy storage unit that they would put in a house and that they would use to essentially do demand charge management. And, and so it had intrigued me, um, but the battery price costs were, were astronomical and you could never make a business case uh, fly. But of course, the issue was that battery costs were coming down. Part of the, the um, electric vehicle exploration that we had done at PG&E uh, called for a smart garage, which actually called for potentially called for using some storage, you know, locally sited storage to help manage when you actually uh, recharge your vehicle or when, when, you know, the time that the electrons are are generated that are going into your vehicle. So storage had always been kind of in, in the back of my mind, but it, it hadn't been, the costs hadn't been uh, compelling yet. But I think it was fairly clear that if the costs got in line, this is this is this was clearly a way to you know TiVo electricity. So this was clearly a an important uh, dynamic. I don't know if this is the right segue, so feel free to redirect. But you got to be thinking in the back of your mind. Okay, I believe that storage is the right direction, but there are like this is still a startup environment where there could be a lot of missed opportunities along the way, and you've already done one that wasn't a good culture fit and one that ultimately just wasn't a good technology roadmap at the end of the day, it ended up failing. What part of ultimately finding Greensmith do you feel like you got, I'll say in air quotes, right? Because you could have chosen any number of Greensmith competitors that aren't on the map today. Yeah, this goes back to your earlier comment about the importance of your network. Along the way, I had I had become friends with Janice Lynn at Stratagen. And um, Janice you know, has been, had been pushing, um, storage for a very long time. You know, the, uh, AB 2540, the, the, the landmark California bill really wouldn't have happened without, uh, without Janice Lynn pushing that and, and making that happen. And I had asked her for some career advice and, you know, what, what did she see? Cause she was really always on the forefront and she actually, uh, convinced me that the costs really were there and AB 2540 had just passed. And, and so the incentives were there and the, and the, and the costs had made it. And, uh, and she introduced me to a number of storage companies. Um, the most important of which was uh, she introduced me to John Jung at, at Greensmith. And um, they were just at the point where they were scaling. They needed someone in business development. They needed someone to look at go-to-market strategies and and uh, and whatnot, and so as they say, the the rest was history. Uh, John and I had a had an instant chemistry. There were some other early individuals, Ken Kim, who had come from Samsung and had been responsible for moving Samsung into batteries. Um, he and I had an instant chemistry, and and the team just felt right. What was Greensmith at the time, and maybe even just in retrospect, doing right that uh, that you saw was directionally where you thought was interesting, and also that in retrospect others had maybe missed or weren't had caught on yet. Like what did Greensmith do so early that it convinced not only some of the biggest players in the industry to select Greensmith for their battery integration, which is essentially what Greensmith did was integrating batteries the way most solar installers integrate solar. Um, And that ultimately led to uh, the, the, the siren call of one of the largest power players in the world. 
I think there were a number of things that they got right. I mean, I think one thing, I believe I was like employee number 12 in 2014, mm-hmm. even though they were founded. So in, hiring you, they got right? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> they, they really held back on, 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 on the big hiring. They, they, they kept, wow. you know, it was the, is this industry real now? How big is this industry? Is it ready to scale yet? You know, they, they, they kept saying it's not the right time yet to scale sales. It's not the right time to scale BD. It's not the right time to scale that yet. And they, they did that right. They timed that right because the, the industry did have a lot of false starts. And, and as a result, they were able to, to, to kind of keep the, the burn, you know, the, the, the burn rate to an acceptable level. So I think that's something uh, that they did right. I think another thing that, uh, that was done right, two other things that they did right. Um, one is a little bit of a technology agnostic or a technology neutral approach to batteries and inverters. And so they had really focused on, on you know, essentially we weren't smart enough to, to pick who the who the winners would, were going to be in the, in the uh, chemistry roulette that was happening in 2014. But we were smart enough to be able to integrate whatever that technology might be. Um, so I think the technology agnostic as the industry was, was working towards settling out who would be the winning technology. Um, and then, of course, the software development and really focusing on the software. How critical a component did software ultimately become? You know, there's a lot of folks that were only focused on software. A lot of folks were only focused on hardware. Talk about the evolution of software as the enabler for energy storage. Yeah, I I think it's a systems business. So I think when you you say that there are people that are only focused on software and there are people that are only focused on hardware, at the end of the day, if you only focus on hardware, you've got a pile of chemicals sitting in a field. And if you only focus on software, you've got controls with nothing to control. So it, it really is this tightly uh, meshed system level approach. And as we have all come to learn, you know, batteries are a little finicky. Uh, they have to be managed in a certain way. There are a number of tricks to squeeze out more usage from batteries. And, and the other thing is, you know, a battery generally only makes money when electrons are in motion. And so the software helps you manage. And, and those two things could be at odds with each other. Right. So how long you allow a battery to rest and and how you manage it according to the warranty parameters that you're given to keep the battery happy, so to speak, keep it in its happy place. But at the same time, you've got to use it and how hard you can push it and how hard you can use it. It's that balance that I think only a system level integration can really can really get right. You may have two batteries that are of identical chemistry, but from from different manufacturers. They will not have the same performance characteristics. You mentioned you were employee, maybe number 12 at Greensmith. The time that you joined to the time that Greensmith was acquired, can you talk a bit about the scale and the scope of growth, both domestically and then internationally? Because one of the things that impresses me about Greensmith is at the time, not only were they a great sort of success story for U.S. domestic sort of battery integrator, but you guys had become a global player. There were, there were a couple of, of items. One is that uh, in one of our financing rounds, we uh, received a strategic investment from, um, from E.ON Climate and Renewables, the uh, renewables arm of the German utility E.ON. And as a result of that investment, they, they uh, essentially helped us with our entree uh, into, into Europe. So I actually personally led that charge and spent a lot of time in the U.K. They had a project that they were looking at in the U.K., and we took that opportunity to actually work with a number of other, um, or to meet and then work with a number of other um, IPPs and developers in the uh, in the UK market. So we were able to, uh, you know, to start building a presence um, in the UK. And then 
Conversely, or similarly, uh, we, Greensmith, had an old relationship with a, uh, a company in Australia, and their business model was more of a uh, you know micro energy storage system at the home level, residential level. So we had pivoted away from that, but we had maintained good relationships with the company. And lo and behold, after that relationship had been relatively dormant for you know six years, seven years, uh, they came back and they were looking at building a, a big battery like a really big battery. And they had done the development work for, for looking at that big battery. And so we went off to Australia, uh, uh, myself and a colleague of mine, David Miller, he and I, uh, who was also the colleague who helped me open up uh, the UK as well. But we went off to Australia and, 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 and while we were there, um, started um, uh, talking to other developers and and uh, started to build a network, series of relationships, series of discussions. That was only amplified and helped after the acquisition by Vertzilla, uh, where we then could have actual local teams that were based in the you know in 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 country, and 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 we were able to scale it from there. But yeah, that was that was very um, rewarding and and very uh, I think a little unusual that we were able to scale just by you know just by flying into the country uh, a couple dozen times. Well, there were so few people offering what you were offering. Think about I think about Greensmith as the power light of of electric of 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 storage, if you will, because in today's economy, what power light was able to do in Germany just wouldn't exist because there are too many other competitive entities already existing in Europe that could easily provide this service. But when Powerlight moved to Germany and built gigawatts of, of solar, when at the time when the United States wasn't doing anything really in the, of that scale, we were all sort of sitting on the sidelines cheering for them and thinking, well, when are we going to have this in our, home, our own home market? You mentioned the acquisition. We've talked a couple of times about it. Obviously, you're now at Bartzilla, have been for uh, the better part of five years. Can you help me understand your role, not just through in growing Greensmith, but in the Wartzilla acquisition of Greensmith? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll never forget this. There was a conference in uh, Dusseldorf, um, Germany. And it was one of these early, you know, again, timeframe 27, 2016, um, early days of the industry. Conferences were still very small. We were there and uh, we had a booth and we were presenting. And this uh, this tall, silent Finn was standing on the side and, and patiently waiting to speak with us. And um, he patiently waited his turn, and then it was time when we spoke. And he said, uh, hello, my name is Risto Paldanius. I am from Wurzela in Finland. Like, okay, who is Wurzela? And, uh, and then we learned about the reciprocating engine market and for power plants. And then we learned about how, you know, they're really looking at this hybridization, the ability to hybridize storage with their engines and they were also looking at this the, what we call the flexibility market um which is essentially the short duration uh market you know where storage fits in the in the one to four hours and and uh, our engines fit in the you know six to uh six to you know 24 hour kind of window um so to speak out of that initial meeting uh that led to a, a strategic collaboration where essentially they would feed opportunities to us and we would jointly pitch opportunities. And that led um, a year later to them coming back to us and saying, we would like to buy you. Um, and so that led to the acquisition. And so to this day, you know, Risto is still my colleague and peer. He runs the America's organization for Wurzela and, um, and I run the business unit for energy storage. And of course, America is our largest, is our largest market. 
so glad to hear hear that. And I know that you've had tremendous growth, not just of the storage business unit for Vartzilla, but as a component of the overall business for Vartzilla. Um, five years after acquisition, are you able to discuss what percentage of new business uh, in the global portfolio comes from your division? I, I'm not because we, we have not made the decision yet to just to break out and disclose separate uh, results. But I will say that um, our growth has been uh, well in excess, um, uh, you know, well in ex- uh, triple digit percentages growth, uh, especially from the time that uh, I took over in uh, January of 2019. What do you attribute that success to? It's the teamwork and the team that that we've been able to create. And it's the it's the attitude um, that we've been able to create. So I think um, one of the biggest compliments um, I have ever received was um, I, I have a, a relatively uh, new member to the team uh, on the on the product uh, management side, Daryl Furlong. He heads up product product development, and his comment to me was that he really liked the culture of this management team because, you know, when we have problems, there is no finger pointing. Um, the immediate attitude is, "How can I help?" What, what do you need for my team? How do we solve this? Everyone jumps in and solves it. And I think that's one of the, one of the, 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 the ultimate goals that you want to get to in, in leadership and managing a team is, is you need to kind of break down the, the, the petty human nature and the defensiveness and the, well, it's not my fault and the, and the lack of accountability or unwillingness to be accountable for certain areas. And you really need to get to that point where you, where you behave like a team. You know, his, his comment, because he's the newest member of the team, he's, uh, you know, he'll be celebrating his one year anniversary this summer. But that was that was his comment, which I which I took with high, high praise. I mean, I thought that was really um, I, I, I take a lot of pride um, in uh, in that comment. And, and I take a lot of pride in, in the team and, and what they're what they're able to do because they're not working cross purpose, but they're working together for a common objective and a common goal. I've mentioned a number of times here, your continual effort at observing, analyzing trends and tacking towards the direction of progress as these different markets merge, as we see the nexus between the power markets and the technologies that will enable them to evolve. What key trends are you watching right now in renewables? The one thing that keeps me up at night, so maybe this isn't quite Mm -hmm. the, the positive forward, but I'll, I'll, I'll turn it around by the end of the answer. The one thing that keeps me up at night right now is, is the raw materials crisis that we have right now and, the, and what's happening in the pricing. Um, and then also the geopolitics of what's going on on the, on the source of panel manufacturing um, issue on the solar side. I like to think that, that basically, or one of the things I think right now is we have what happens when an unstoppable force hits an immovable object. And so the unstoppable force would be Renew, you know, renewables, the progress of renewables and the fact that we have, you know, the wind is at our back, literally and figuratively, um, but the wind is at our back and, and, and the cost dynamics, the cost picture is all going in the right way. You know, I like to, I like to sometimes joke that, that that renewables are winning, not just because they're green, but because they're the other green, too. You know, they're actually making money for people and they're the, the lowest uh, form of new energy generation. You know the cheapest form of new energy generation, which means that if you're a if you're an IPP looking at where you're going to invest your next marginal dollar to get the best return, you're going to do it in renewables because you get a better return because the costs are lower per on a on a levelized cost of energy 
basis. But we have this immovable object, which is you know uh, the, the what's going on with uh, with raw material pricing on the battery side, and then on the on the solar side, you know where we get our panels from, and how do we how do we manage through that? So I think we have a little bit of a of a bump in the road. Um, I think also on the battery pricing side, um, I might be a little bit more bearish than some of my my peers because I think that we have underestimated the demand for electric vehicles and how much faster it is growing. I think very happily, I think we have passed the inflection point on EVs. And, and I think, you know, I, I think that uh, when you get Ford selling out the Mach EV, uh, you know, taking, selling out all the reservations on the F-150 Lightning, you know, when you, when you get that kind of demand, and then, and then you have all sorts of, of other vehicles that are coming to market that I don't believe people really anticipated, um, you know, beyond the Rivians, but even the Rivians of the world, right? You know, the, the demand for, for, for batteries is, is, is fierce. Um, and then from the mining standpoint, you know, it, it takes two years to build, to get mining capacity up and running. But I do believe it's, it's somewhat temporary. You know, I was listening to a, um, an interesting podcast the other day about, about lithium and about the progress of two lithium mines in the United States, in particular, one down at the Salton Sea, and was really encouraged to hear that, that you know, there, there is alignment and effort in trying to get the, uh, you know, the Salton Sea uh, going. There's, they're looking at a geothermal plant, but also one of the derivative products would be lithium mining. Um, so these are, all, these are all good developments. But on, on future trends, I think the role of software has become pretty obvious, and I think it's only going to increasingly grow. Um, you know, if you if you look at what happened to uh, market prices in Texas, you look at both this recent heat wave that they've had, and then you also, of course, look at the Snowmageddon event that they had uh, last winter, uh, winter 2020, and the volatility in the markets is not decreasing. And so the role of storage, the role that storage can play when you have these extreme volatilities you know, there, there's real money to be made for, for our customers. Yeah. I mean, the kind of back to even merging again, your, your knowledge with how the utilities work, what they need, your time at, you know, a company like AutoGrid and your understanding and knowledge of using storage as ancillary services, this ability to enable grid balancing through software coupled storage is a game changer. I mean, it's a game changer for renewables. It's a game changer for, you know, sun's renewables for utilities broadly to be able to better manage the loads as the grid evolves. Yeah, I mean, I think you know I, I made made the earlier comment, uh, uh, Nico, that that a battery storage facility only makes money when when electrons are moving, right? When 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 electrons are at play. You know, an example uh, I'd like to give is we have a project in Georgia um, for RWE. Our, our customers RWE, the the IPP RWE. This is a solar plus storage facility. It's actually our first DC DC connected storage facility. Uh, but importantly, RWE has a has a PPA uh, that has two. It, it's what I would call a complex PPA. And let me unpack that. It's it's complex because there is a minimum monthly requirement. So there's a minimum number of kilowatt hours that have to be uh, kilowatt uh, kilowatt hours actually that have to be delivered. Okay, um, over the cross over the the span of a month. And then there is a time of use pricing, which incents the hours where the sun is not fully shining. So this is where, you know, this is where we want to go with using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the ability to really forecast, you know, what does the rest of the day look like? What is, what is our output going to be able to be, you know, for the rest of the day so that we could meet our minimum commitment 
And then, you know, when can we actually, how much can we then shift and how do you maximize revenue? Because, you know, maybe you miss the minimum commitment and there's a little bit of penalty, but you make more on the time shifting, right? And so I think this portends the future. I think you're going to see many more complex PPAs. And I think the IPPs that are going to be able to figure out how to, how to negotiate these are, you know, will be the, the, the big winners. You know, I usually ask a question around what do we believe are the big problems to solve next, kind of the things that are holding us back and blocking us. And you mentioned something that just, like it stands out, something I wouldn't want to skip over here. And I wonder how it, how it pairs with your purview of the industry. And that is that Vortzilla uh, is investing in AI to analyze the way that the software can optimally impact the load and the, the transfer of these electrons. Can you talk a bit about uh, how Vartilla is supporting innovation in the energy sector broadly and then how that tracks towards your, uh, your career long purview of what is the nexus of these technologies and what's holding us back from really seeing explosive growth in renewables and storage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as I have mentioned, an energy storage system without without smart intelligence is really just a, a a pile of chemicals, you know, sitting sitting in a field. And so the challenge is really trying to figure out how, how do you maximize uh, the use of it, and how do you or not just maximize really, but optimize. So people often talk about the great thing about energy storage is that it's so flexible and it can do so many things. But the challenge, I think, as an industry that we have is that is that this is one of the first assets that is this flexible, and that and that that can do so many things. And as a result, we, we've only begun to, you know, touch the tip of the iceberg on, on, on what those things are and how we do it. There are some regulatory frameworks that are, um, you know, that are impeding us. An example would be in Texas, you're either a load or you're a generator. And unfortunately, an energy, well, not unfortunately, fortunately, but unfortunately for Texas, for the, you know, the, the Texas regs uh, impede this, we are a generator and a load. And some of the value that we can generate is because we can be a generator or a load. So there are some some uh, you know some regulatory frameworks that are um, you know that are in place that may be um, a little challenging. But it, it, the the ability for software to unleash value here is just is just really very significant. It's just large, and data science is where it's all at. I mean, data science is is is, is the most important thing, and and from the get go, we have always invested in in data science. We have been we have one of the largest data science teams for storage um, as we speak, and we continue to uh, to hire and 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 invest in that area. Andy, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you. Just generally wrapping up what I feel like has been a really deep conversation around navigating a career that constantly looks out and says, "Am I working on the right thing?" I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I believe that often some of the best inspiration we can get is from the combined intellectual gifts we've received in the form of books from, uh, from folks that, you know, that learned things and we don't have to go back and experience them ourselves. Are there any books that stand out for you that have been instrumental in the way that you think about life or leadership or, or building a business? So maybe not a, a direct answer on that, but I think the, the book that I read most that has really resonated with me is uh, a book by Heather Hansman called Powder Days. And uh, the, the subtext, the subtitle is Ski Bombs, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. And I guess one of the points that I, I you know, didn't make is, is I, I also come to the renewables field really as a, as a little bit of a personal quest. 
And and the personal quest is is that I am I am a uh, an, an avid skier, and I've raised a family of avid skiers, and we have somewhat kind of personally seen, uh, you know, what has happened uh, as snow levels and as snow levels rise increase, and as the amount of precipitation, you know, we're going into the fourth year of a drought here in in, in Northern California. So you know, part of this has also been the challenge of you know, what do I want to do to make a difference or to try to slow this down or to try to stop this? And then on the, on the, on, uh, you know, specifically referring to that book, there's a section about, you know, what's happening in the industry, what's happening with weather, how does the industry adapt? How will it adapt? Which is really, um, you know, really a, a, a very interesting read. And then there's a little bit of escapist fantasy that sometimes I just want to throw it all away and be a ski bum. <laughs> Well, you've had uh, quite the successful career, and I'm sure that at some point you'll be able to hang up the suit and tie and and return to the slopes for a little more leisure. Until then, I know that you're hard at work building the grid edge infrastructure that empowers all of us to roll out more renewals. How could folks, if they were so inclined, uh, reach you or, or engage with you? Where do you like to be found? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, probably the, the, uh, the best uh, avenue. We'll link to your LinkedIn credentials in the show notes of the episode. Andy Tang, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What else is in your crystal ball? I think we will see the the buildup of the supply chain in the United States. I think it's it's coming in, in, in fits and starts. I'm more encouraged to, that that will happen on the battery storage side than it will on the solar side. Um, but I do think that uh, the government right now is is very serious about building uh, building supply chains. And I think that we will see uh, more trend towards regionalization, uh, regionalization of supply and companies having to move um, in that direction with where they get their supply and that becoming an increasingly important qualification. Andy Tang is the vice president of energy storage and optimization for globally renowned Wardzilla Energy. And he leads there business unit focused on energy storage and the connection of energy storage with all of the other resources we need for renewables to truly thrive and dominate on the generation side of the power business. Andy, it has been fascinating hearing how you have arrived at the many destinations along your journey. Thank you for sharing with us the insights of your story, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. All right, Solar Warrior. That's a wrap on this fantastic conversation. I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, to Andy for sharing his story. It really is a story of, uh, of triumph over trials and diligent, deliberate, intentional personal development. I really learned a lot from you, Andy. Thanks. And I know that the tribe has as well. And also uh, another thank you to Antenna Group for helping confirm and secure this conversation with Andy Tang. What did you learn, Solar Warrior? Man, I'll tell you, of the many, many things that I am taking away from this conversation, one is the opportunity that midlife crises can can represent, both uh, forced by health or non-forced, just by the ability to take a pause and redirect uh, and reevaluate your career. Andy is a great example of how someone in their mid to late 30s can take a different direction and and redirect for the benefit of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, the efforts of their career. I mean, his stories from his days at PG&E are, uh, are tremendous, 
but I actually really enjoyed how thoughtful and careful Andy was, both about the selection of the direction he wanted to go in his career and the amount of time he stayed at each point along the way. There are so many more lessons and takeaways. I'd love to hear yours. We've posted over on LinkedIn as we are prone to do <laughs> over 500 episodes here in. And I'd love to have your insight. Would you go and leave a comment in the thread, not, not the least of which to thank Andy for taking the time and being so generous to teach from his experience here. But also, what did you learn? What are you taking away? And tag someone in the comment that you think would love to hear this episode. That's how we share the message here and proselytize the good news that clean energy is transforming the energy grid. I really appreciate that you have shown up. And if you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow follow math, can get the resources, insights, tips, notes, links, and social media connections for Andy and all the other 500 plus episodes that we have laid down here at Suncast by going over to mysuncast.com, click on the episodes tab, and that'll take you to our weekly summaries of the brain droppings from these mini deep dives with industry experts just like Andy Tang. Next week, we have a very special debut. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, our Beyond O&M educational series in partnership with Omnidian will be dropping on August 15th. If you haven't heard the trailer for that series, I would encourage you to go check it out and learn what kinds of insights we have for the future of solar. And in the second half of the week, we have my friend Matt Sachs from Sea Power talking about distributed energy resources. Not to miss episodes here on Suncast, as hopefully you've come to expect. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them and how you could partner with us to help the Suncast tribe and reach thousands of clean tech champions and solar warriors just like yourself by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.